Thank you for listening to How We Got Here. This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. everyone and welcome back. I really hope you're enjoying this podcast because we really like making it for you. How We Got Here is a look at what happened in history in Virginia this week. The stories almost always lead us down a quirky path back to present day, so pay attention. I'm Rachel DePampa, an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. This week, we are turning back the pages of history for June 17th through the 23rd. We've got floods. In modern history, it's the one that you talk about. The birth and spread of country music. With a chaser, Johnny Cash. And what the heck was Disney thinking when it comes to Captain John Smith? Stocky with a bright red beard, 26-year-old, very full of himself. All right, let's get going. The year, 1972. Her name, Agnes. The notorious hurricane hit Florida's panhandle as a Category 1 storm on June 19th of 1972. Two days later, the storm weakened and was swirling off the southeast coast of Virginia. When you look at it, this was a sort of dying tropical storm that just sort of went in the exact right place to produce a whole lot of rain. A whole lot of rain is right. Agnes apparently was like 5 to 15 inches above a a large area in Virginia. That was just in the western half of the state. 16 inches of rain recorded in Northern Virginia and another eight at Reagan National Airport. Central Virginia was in trouble. And because Richmond sits along the banks of the James River, it was really vulnerable. Well, Agnes is basically the storm of record. In modern history, it's the one that you talk about. I mean, it was the highest crest along the James River in the city. So it is the benchmark for flooding. That's Andrew Freedom. He's a meteorologist at NBC12 here in Richmond. When it comes to wacky weather knowledge, he's the guy you want to talk to because, frankly, he's obsessed with weather. I love weather because it's sort of, it's the thing. It's like the one thing that it surrounds the entire Earth. Everybody experiences it. I don't think I can stress this enough. Really into it. Plus, I love the outdoors. Like, I grew up, I was always out there. Looking at the trees, looking at the dirt, looking at the grass. I'm a guy who was always into that stuff. And I found myself in Richmond in 2011. Haven't left. He's got a science background, graduating from the University of Virginia with an environmental science degree. Yeah, that Virginia. And he won't let you forget it. He's been waiting forever for this. The one with the national title in men's basketball. Wahoo! I'm a Terrapin from the University of Maryland. You'll never catch me saying that again. You didn't hear it on this podcast. Moving on. I also like learning things. So I know all kinds of random things about Richmond and about Virginia that a lot of folks hear and they go, what? How cool is that? So hopefully we can spread some of that knowledge. 
knowledge of this historic flood in Virginia, the worst since 1771. So Agnes was the flood of record at the West Ham Gauge. It's west of the city, and it measures how high the river is before it enters the city of Richmond. It peaked at 28 feet. But there's also another gauge downtown. And the level there was 36 and a half feet. But in both of those gauges, it was the highest ever recorded, you know, in modern times. It's flooding that those who have lived here recently could only imagine. We're talking about the crest of the James River. On a normal day, those gauges that Andrew mentioned would only read about five feet. So 36 and a half feet at the gauge in downtown Richmond is unfathomable. When we talk about a flood stage and when and people drive across the river and they go, oh my gosh, it's flooding, a flood stage is 12 feet. And I've been here almost 20 years. I think in the past 20 years, I don't think we have anything higher than about a, a 15 to 17 foot flood at the West Ham gauge. For those Richmonders listening, when the James River flooded the city because of Agnes, the first floor of the iconic Main Street station was underwater. Manchester decimated. You know, it just was, you see the pictures, it's actually mind-blowing how much acreage, how many businesses, how many blocks were underwater. Around 200 blocks of downtown Richmond flooded. Of the five bridges that crossed the James River, four of them washed out. Oh, yeah. I mean, traumatic. You see pictures, you've seen the pictures of like, you know, there were like trees all over the Mayo Bridge. The Mayo Bridge went underwater. Damage estimates for Richmond alone, $37 million. And that's in 1972. That number would be north of 200 million today. Across the Commonwealth, hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. More than a dozen lives lost. You know, we haven't had anything close in recent history. And it's basically been luck, you know, it just, it hasn't worked out meteorologically that we've had enough rain to bring the river up as high as it was in Agnes in 1972. Remember everyone, this was only 47 years ago. A storm like this can happen at any time. Oh yeah, very feasible. We have this flood wall system now. The flood wall went in after Agnes. It took another disaster in the River City to get the wall. President Reagan signed legislation authorizing it in 1986 after Hurricane Juan swelled the James River over 30 feet. It was completed in October 1994 and it cost an estimated $143 million. Since then it hadn't even been tested. I mean, I mean, it's been tested in terms of like, you know, the crews that run it, but we haven't had a flood that's been high enough to even really worry about closing all the floodgates. I think if there were another Agnes, theoretically, the flood wall should protect us. According to the National Weather Service, the flood wall should shield the city up to 41 feet. That's about five feet higher than what Agnes did to the river level. If you ever had a stalling tropical system sit over Virginia and rain that much over a large area, I think that we would see the flood wall over top. It's not impenetrable. I mean, it's, it could happen. It's a scary thing to think about. I try not to think about it too much, but it's something that could happen. You know, this is weather, this is nature. You know, we can't engineer our way out of every single potential scenario. Every once in a while, something happens and it overwhelms what we humans have built to try to make it, you know, safe and livable. 16 people in Virginia died because of Agnes. And as Andrew says, a storm like that could happen again, but the digital age may help. You know, imagine if we were on the air saying, hey, this is a potential Agnes situation. 
uh, the flood's going to be so big that it could test and or threaten the flood wall. I mean, everybody would know. And so you'd hope at the very least the fatalities would be lower. Nice. I'm getting depressed and scared talking about Agnes. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's something that you hope, you just hope doesn't happen. Um, and you hope if it does happen that people are smart about preparing for it. So why does this matter? Why should we talk about the worst flood in the history of Virginia 47 years ago this week? I mean, we see it happening in Houston. They get a tropical system, stalls out, all-time flooding. Wilmington, tropical system, stalls out, all-time flooding. That all-time flooding 47 years ago led to change. But we're still watching people stand in the path of these monstrous storms, defying warnings to get out while they can. If you take anything from this, know Mother Nature never holds back. We probably haven't seen the last of these perfect storms that leave cities paralyzed. June 17, 1972. It's a date many will remember. In the early morning that Saturday, five men were arrested at the National Democratic Headquarters in D.C. Watergate. A seemingly routine burglary ended with five arrests in the Watergate complex, but further investigations revealed that the burglars were agents hired by the Committee for the Re-Election of President Nixon. One of those burglars was from Virginia. Frank Sturgis was arrested that June 17th, but when he was born in Norfolk in December of 1924, his birth name was actually Frank Fiorini. His parents were first-generation Italian-Americans, but when his mother remarried, she took his stepfather's last name and moved to Florida, where his story really takes off. We're not going to get into all that. Let's just say, if you Google his name, you're likely to fall down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories that include things like ties to the CIA, the JFK assassination, his anti-Fidel Castro efforts. There's a little bit of everything. My producer Colton, he researches a lot of this for me, he fell into that hole himself. It took him a little while to recover. Needless to say, a long chain of events from June 17, 1972, led to this famous line by Nixon. That I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Well, we all know how that ended. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Just another moment in time when the world was watching and someone from the Commonwealth of Virginia was involved. For better or for worse. Country music is booming and its roots are buried deep in Virginia, specifically Southwest Virginia the home of the first family of country music. In 1927, the Carter family traveled just over 20 miles from Hilton's, Virginia to Bristol, Tennessee to record six songs. 
Keep on the Sunny Side and Will the Circle Be Unbroken are two of the more well-known mountain songs that became country standards. On June 23, 1929, Maybelle Carter had a baby girl. Maybelle was part of the original Carter family trio that was being discovered around the country thanks to the Victor Talking Machine Company and those recordings in Bristol. Valerie June Carter was born that day in Scott County in the heart of the Appalachian region of Virginia. She'd go by her middle name, June. The original Carter family trio stopped touring the country in the early 40s, but June and her sisters continued to tour with their mom, a group known as Mother Maybell and the Carter Sisters. June Carter and her family moved to Richmond, where they performed on the radio, first on WRNL, then on WRVA. This music you've been hearing, the Library of Virginia helped us find it. It's actually a recording of the Old Dominion Barn Dance, which aired on WRVA in the mid-1940s. I want to thank the station for letting us use it in the podcast. Back to June, she graduated from John Marshall High School in 1946. June sang and played the auto harp. She was best known for her jokes and humor, drawing on her broad caricatures of her rustic upbringing. She's not actually best known for her early days, and maybe you figured it out by now, but during the 1950s, June Carter met and performed with some of the biggest names in American music, Hank Williams, Elvis Presley, and in 1961, June and her family were invited to tour with the man in black himself, Johnny Cash. The following year, June Carter and her cousin wrote a song called Love's Ring of Fire. Johnny Cash would trim the title, up the tempo, and the rest is country history. Although both were married to other people in the early 1960s, the pair eventually became romantically involved. Both divorced their spouses, and on February 22, 1968, while still on tour, Johnny Cash bent down to one knee on stage in Canada and proposed to June. They married a week later. The world now had Johnny and June Carter Cash. Both would suffer from drug addiction. Their marriage and careers would struggle, but they remained together. She died in May of 2003, and Johnny was not far behind. He passed away that same September. June Carter Cash was born into the musical legacy that is credited with the birth of country music. Her family paved the way for her future husband and all other country music performers, and it all started with the mountain music of Southwest Virginia. Now we're going to go back. I mean way back further than we've ever gone on how we got here. The year is 1631. The date, June 21st. 51-year-old Captain John Smith is dead. 
Now, when you think about John Smith today, most minds go right to Disney's Pocahontas, where in that movie, he's portrayed as this tall, blonde, striking adventurer with whom Pocahontas falls in love. It turns out the only accurate word in that last sentence of mine was adventurer. He's a mercenary soldier. He's about five foot two, so he's one of the shorter people here. And the average man for day and age is about five eight, five nine. So he, he's a stocky with a bright red beard, 26 year old, very full of himself. And I would think the person you want next to you in a bar fight probably. A very good soldier, very good with his weapon. So for any ladies out there who daydreamed about Captain John Smith portrayed as a Prince Charming in the movie, sorry to ruin that for you. He was a short, pompous ginger. And no offense to gingers. I was born with red hair, so I can say this. <laughs> probably a good temper to go along with his red hair, probably. Like most of my kin have. <laughs> That's Michael Steen. He's the director of education at the Waterman's Museum in Yorktown. He got his master's at Virginia Commonwealth University, worked at Jamestown for about 10 years, and has been studying Captain John Smith for three decades. And he says there's something you need to know about Smith's writings, which is what his legend is based on. I tell my school kids all the time, looking at John Smith is an important primary source. And when he writes about animals and plants and the Powhatans and how they live and how they dress, and he describes Virginia, a great primary source of exactly what he sees. Like most things, when he, when he talks about himself, he tends to embellish. That's where we start coming to problems. When he fights off the Indians with empty pistols, saved by the princess and such, there's no cross-reference there for those pieces. In Smith's memoirs about his life, he apparently liked to give his stories a little extra punch. But let's get back to why Captain John Smith was sent to the New World in the first place. Uh, again, what he's remembered for historically is, is the big map. That essentially is what, what he was sent here to do. He came over and explored 3,000 miles of, of the Chesapeake Bay and made copious notes about shorelines and currents and also where the, all the Indian villages were and what trees were available and what iron ore or, or where the gold was supposed to be. So for history, the map's what Smith is, does best. That's maps used up into the 18th century, one of the primary you know, sources of, of how to get around the Chesapeake Bay. That's right, a map. But he doesn't even get to the colony before he's made some enemies. He's accused of mutiny on the way over in 1607. I've actually confined to quarters and, and whether he's actually just put down below uh, decks and, and locked up. We're actually in chains, it's hard to say, but they said they tried to hang him in the West Indies on the way over. And they said they couldn't convince him to use the noose. He's not off to a hot start. So Smith is, has lots of enemies already on the way over. And when, when he's here, he conspires with other folks to have the first president overthrown. That's not going to make you any friends. But Smith was part of the governing council of Jamestown, which was made up of seven men. And that also may have saved him from the noose. But other leaders of the fort were not done yet. There's lots of animosity already growing in, here in Virginia. And he makes enemies with all the other counselors. And they, in turn, go back to England to press charges against Smith. That's right. Other counselors sailed back to England to basically sue him. While they were gone, Smith is captured by the Powhatan Indians. Of course, he's captured and he's traipsed about through the Empire area on Tidewater, eventually ends up at Werewakomico, uh, not in the first part of his memoirs, but in the second set of his memoirs. Uh, he's saved by the Princess Pocahontas. You heard that right. 
Pocahontas wasn't in the first set of memoirs, but that part of the story slipped into the second round. Maybe while he was writing that first set, his mind was just around the river bend or something. Who knows? Hard to say again, there's only one source for that. There's no real cross-reference. We have to rely on Smith's personal account after the fact as to what happened there. Needless to say, his life is spared, and he becomes the president of Jamestown. But around this time, all of those enemies of his are back from England, and they announce that Smith is no longer in charge. Of course, he doesn't step down. He, he in turn, takes it upon himself to, to try to improve the colony, and uh, he divides everybody up into three large groups. One of those groups came to what is now Richmond, and that group did not get along with the Indians living along the banks of the James River. So Smith travels northwest to try and salvage what he can. He actually buys an Indian village up at the fall line, and he calls it Fort Nonsuch. You heard that right. He said Fort Nonsuch. Nonsuch, a, a good place to, to, to settle. That's right down down there in Shaco Bottom. So it was, a, it was an, an Indian village that either was deserted or was not being used at the time. So he gave the Indians a whole bunch of trade goods in exchange for allowing the English settlers to fit for none such. What does that even mean? The quote is, there's none such a beautiful place. Well, that fort none such idea does not work out. There's about 120 men there, and they're rebelling against Smith's orders. And he's forced to flee down the river. And then eventually, Smith, on his way back down to Jamestown falls asleep while he's sleeping. Someone lights his powder bag and blows up his whole left side. Those enemies of his are still at Jamestown. And at this point, they force the injured Smith out of office and put someone else in charge. Smith says they try to uh, actually shoot him while he's lying in his bed. Lots of enemies, lots of problems going on. Captain John Smith is sent back to England to stand trial for abuse of power and for apparently conspiring with the Indians in Richmond to have those 120 men killed. He goes back to England, he will win that case. But Smith's impact on Virginia isn't as clear-cut as it always seemed. Smith is here for two years. The claim is he saved Virginia, but uh, hard to say whether he's the hero or the actual enemy here for the colony. Now, of course, when Smith leaves and the, the Powhatan rises up and besieges Jamestown, that leads into what we call the starving time. Population is decimated the winter of 1609. John Smith, is he a hero? Is he a great guy? Is he the causer of the fault of the colony? It's hard to say. Remember that map he made? His map comes out in 1612, and that map shows everything you'd want to know about Virginia and Chesapeake Bay. It'll be used as a promotional piece to bring more people to the colonies. From tall blonde Prince Charming to short pompous Ginger. We may not be able to nail down everything about Captain John Smith, but he sure made one hell of a map. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you to the woman in black, digital director Kate Albright, who thought up this crazy idea. And to our wordsmith, executive producer Colton Weekly. Special thanks to my friend, the weather geek, meteorologist Andrew Frieden. The Library of Virginia for its amazing archives. WRVA for allowing us to use music it recorded of the Carter family in the 1940s. 
and Michael Steen of the Waterman's Museum. Elvis has almost left the building. And a man who danced into our hearts, tapping into a movement to strengthen historically black communities. When he died, he, he was penniless. He stepped up to the plate. Also, the day we needed to define derecho. You almost never actually forecast that, it's so rare. And the beginning of the Seven Days Battles. Imagine the sound of the rebel yell. Imagine seeing them step out. You know, imagine hearing and the very ground shaking as the artillery blasted away. This is huge. A campaign that would change the landscape of the Civil War. That's next week on Episode 4. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, rate and review us so others will find us. We'll be back in your life next Monday.